Welcome to Birth Stories in Color, a podcast creating community for people of color to share and learn from birth stories of all types. I'm your host, Laurel Gurrier. Hello, everyone. Today's episode features Elisa Thomas, who will be sharing her hospital birth story. She and her husband found out two months after their marriage that they were expecting, and it was a bit of a shock. Elisa's story includes some birth elements we haven't discussed on the show yet, so we are looking forward to diving into this one. So, hello, and welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> All right, so can you first start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your family? I am a spoken word poetess. My husband is Reynolds. He is a visual artist. And our nearly one-year-old daughter, Monet, was born on January 1st um, of 2018. And she is a sample. <laughs> She's just it's like nine months. Um, but altogether, we are a bag of creative. Um, our initials actually spell art, A-R-T. Um, and yeah, that's us in the package. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, can you tell us, so can you start by telling us a little bit about your pregnancy? Um, I had a fairly simple pregnancy, especially by comparison to other friends and family that was pregnant in and around the time that I was. So um, I didn't have food aversion or morning sickness or anything like that. The only two, I guess, health concerns I had um, was that I was borderline anemic prior to conception. And I had incredibly severe grotesque heartburn. <laughs> Ouch. was a worse from 13 weeks straight on increasing weekly until Monet was born. So we had um, tried everything. And I say weekly because my husband, like, God bless him, he was up trying to help me figure out how to make it work. <laughs> um, like, I, I tried everything. And by the end of my pregnancy, I was maxing out crumbs and band packs. Like, if I left the house without it, I'd have to go find somewhere where I could get crumbs because I wow. couldn't eat it. Um, so those are the only two things. Like, to be honest, they're minor by comparison to other people. Sure, it made me nauseous. And sure, I wanted to sleep better. But compared to other people, I had it really well. Um, and the other two things that we had that were a bit of a scare, I refer to it more as, like, a science scare, um, was one was that we opted not to do genetic testing. Um, and we also opted to not do our first ultrasound until we were halfway through our pregnancy. And it took three attempts to get a glimpse of baby's heart. And when they finally did, they informed us that she had soft markers on her heart um, for Down syndrome. And so I took like the 12 hours of the time they told me to like morning to just do all my research and panic and call my husband and call my mom and all the rest of it. And then I just got my ish together and I was like, this is what it is. This is what it is. They're just telling us what already exists. Like I can't change baby. So, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and then we ended up going for a more like high tech ultrasound and it turned out that there was nothing on baby's heart. So um, that was a science there. This is why we often, again, not to do genetic testing. Yeah. Um, and the second thing was later in the pregnancy, like 32 weeks close to the time when I was um, due, 
they told us that there was a potential microphone may not have been functioning the way it should have been because baby was on the smaller side. Mm-hmm. Five, five, two and a half, five, three on a good day, five, five, you include the hair. And <laughs> 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 an average height man, he's like five ten, five eleven. So we're not particularly tall people. Um, and so they kept saying that baby's on the small side, it could be a placenta. And when they did the ultrasound, we did like three ultrasounds in like a six week period. Um, and they said that she's just small, <laughs> which was born to a six pounds, three ounces. So those were the only two like science scares and then the only two health concerns I had. But besides that, it was a breeze. Yeah. And so I think like you describing some of those scares and like opting to do some things and opting to not do some things, I think is like the battle that some people find when they're like presented, like, do you want to get the testing for this? Do you want to get the testing for that? And sometimes I find like, even for myself when I was pregnant, but also like working with other families, many people are just like, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. And these tests are either going to like stress me out to the mass max or I just, you know, let it, let it happen. Like, of course, if it's something where like baby might need surgery before, if there's other things you can do before, but there's some things where you're just like, well, you know, what can we do besides just worry about it now until they're born? Um, yeah. So my husband and I had decided even before we were um, making sleep that we were not going to find out the gender of our child. Um, just because they're just so little and like we can control. <laughs> so we figured, why not just have some fun with it? So we already weren't finding out the gender of our baby. Um, and Monet's due date was December 31st, 2017. So we were like, we don't even know what year this child will be. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know, mom. Like, we're like, oh, my baby might be born April. My baby might be born May. We're like, we don't even know what year. She could, if this literally will map out, of course, her life. Like, she could be the youngest in her class forever, or she could be the oldest in her class forever. Like, we're we're just leaving a lot up to chance. And my midwife had recommended that if we opted not to do genetic testing or the thirteen-week um, ultrasound that she was on our side with that, not just as our healthcare provider, but simply because of my health status and my age, they weren't factors in um, a potential detriment to the baby's health. So we're like, we're not even really risking it, but if we are, we're willing to risk it. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll just wait. Like there's really nothing that we could do to save it. So right. I want that cloud of stress over my pregnancy, especially my first pregnancy. Um, Yes, for sure. For sure. And I think that's just important in like doing what works best for you. Like not, mm-hmm. not sitting in like, because this person said to do it or this person said not to do, but like really what fits best for your family. Um, and it sounds like, you know, throughout your pregnancy, you guys were, you know, doing research and really prepping. So how did you prepare for your birth? And I mean, was it something you were thinking about throughout your pregnancy? Labor was a single-handedly the scariest thing I, like the biggest fear I had mm-hmm. once I like realized I could get pregnant in terms of like, once I was like 13 and I had my period, I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I can't get pregnant and I can have a baby and this child has to come out only one way. That is just scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, it was literally my biggest fear. So we have three, I had three primary things that I did um, to help me prepare for labor. So one of them was affirmations and prayers. Mm-hmm. 
really just believing that I was created to do this. My body was created to do this. That I, I am strong. I am capable. I am willing to work with my body. A lot of I am statements, um, just belief that that was what was going to be. Um, the second thing was having a flexibility and understanding that if my labor didn't go the way, according to my birth plan, mm -hmm. I w would be okay with it. And I could um, be flexible enough to change it. Because going off of the first point, if I am trusting my body and I am working with my body and it's a partnership and my body knows what to do, then I could trust my body to be flexible in doing right. what was best for my body and my child. And the third thing that I did was shutting down people's stories. As good as it is to hear other stories, if your story was scary or worst case scenario, I'm not saying those things don't happen. Um, I didn't want to hear it because it's not that it's a matter of normal or abnormal. It's a matter of the chance of that happening is not as high as sometimes it's painted because those are the only stories that are being told. So even with my mom, my mom has horror stories of like near death because placenta abruption with, um, with my brother. And um, she had a very stressful labor and pregnancy with my sister. And she was in labor with me for almost three days. So it was just like, I had these stories that I was hearing from my childhood about labor and how um, there's child loss and mother loss and all the rest of it. And I was hearing these stories and I just would have to tell people, I don't want to know. I don't want to hear it. That is not my story. Um, so it, again, going back to the first point, it was a belief thing. So I had a friend and her mom would come up to me, especially in my last trimester. She'd be like, I just pray that you have a discounted labor. And I was like, a discounted what? Discounted <laughs> labor. 50% off of everything. 50% off the time, off the pain, off of everything. And I was like, yes, I just even I accept that. <laughs> what was funny is in my head, I had this belief that I would be in labor, especially as a first time mom, for 24 hours. And I was actually in labor. For, from the point of contraction to the point of birth for less than 12 hours. So it's really yes. thing. And, and I was convinced that labor would kill me. I was convinced that I would go in and I wouldn't come out. Mm -hmm. um, I was convinced of a lot of things because of the stories that people were telling me. Um, so for instance, people will tell you like, oh, it's worse than period cramp. I'm like, I've passed out from period cramp too. Labor was actually easy than, easier than I anticipated. Because <laughs> <laughs> they told me it was worse than that. So I was like, I thought I really would have died. Mm -hmm. So my third point was I had to shut down a lot of people sharing their story with me, not because sharing stories don't have value. I mean, we're doing it right now, but because not every story needs to be told in every season. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, that's such... A, such a good point. Like your, your, your three points are all just wonderful and what people should think about. Like I'm always telling people having affirmations or some type of like focal point that you can use to remind yourself, because I do feel like a lot of labor is mental. Like there's a point where like your body and your brain is like, well, your brain, yeah, is telling you, telling you, I can't do it. And your body is like, no, we're doing it. 
it's happening. And your, your brain, it has to catch up and having those statements can help with that. Mm -hmm. And then being flexible with, you know, birth plan. Like we tell people create a birth preference because things are going to change. We, we have no control. The children run the show. So we can have the things we want, but like things might come up that we just have to adapt to. Um, and then really understanding like what stories you need at that moment and what stories you don't, because everyone, no matter who you talk to, for the most part, is going to want to share their story. I mean, that was one why this platform was created because we found <laughs> that so many people wanted to share their stories, but you do, you have people who are trying to find a connection between their experience. And sometimes, especially for people who may have had traumatic experiences, they're definitely seeking or wanting to, you know, help other people know what might happen. And it's like, I don't need that today. And especially because I was, I had the belief that I would die. And my husband always says, well, of course you thought labor was, you thought you would die. The fact that you survived it means that you thought it was easy. And I was like, no, but everyone I had spoken to have painted it as being so hard that I didn't think I had the strength and ability to overcome it. Right. So it was really, it got to a place of like, I can't do this and I can't do this being, I can't listen to what you have to share with me right now because just because you're feeding it to me doesn't mean I need to be consuming it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, can you tell us your birth story? Yeah. Um, so we found out that we were pregnant two months after we were married um, <laughs> to the day. To the day. <laughs> it was wild. I remember that morning I did the test. Um, of the day I did the test, I said to my husband, I'm like, um, I'm not feeling so well. And he's like, yeah, because you drank too much last night. And I was like, no, no, this, this is different. This, this is really different. <laughs> um, yeah, and within like 30 seconds, the test is like, hey, you're pregnant. So I struggled in the early parts of our pregnancy with um, just accepting the fact that I was pregnant. But by the time we gave birth, I was excited. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, like I said earlier, our due date was December 31st. We didn't know what was going to happen. I worked up until December 23rd. And so I had a week prior to our due date. Um, to just enjoy, yeah, um, and enjoy <laughs> in winter wear, right? <laughs> and um, and when we, we so I was carrying super high, and so we used that week to just walk through every mall we could find <laughs> to get baby down. <clears throat> I drank all the teas, I bounced all the balls, I did all the dances, and December 31st rolled around, it was 9.30 p.m., and I looked over to Reynolds, and I was like, this baby's not coming. <laughs> so my due date was, a month, was actually a Sunday. And I was like, yes, this baby's not coming until, like, Thursday. So his best friend um, actually has a birthday on January 1st as well. So usually they celebrate celebrate by ringing in the new year. So I said to him, to be honest, um, I just want to be by myself. I just want a hot shower to watch an episode of Fresh Prince, eat some snacks, and sleep in the big bed alone. <laughs> <laughs> and if I need anything, you're 30 minutes away, I'll just give you a call and cool. 
And he's all like, are you sure? Are you sure? I'm like, yeah, it's fine. So he goes, I did, did everything I wanted to do. And my last thing I wanted to do was take a shower before I went to bed. And so I set my alarm on my phone because I wanted to know when midnight was going to come. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the shower, um, can't see my toes, and my water broke. But I literally convinced myself that um, I couldn't see my toes. It meant I probably peed. Um, I didn't realize that. Um, but just like the point of when we learned that we were pregnant and I was in denial. <laughs> <laughs> I was also in denial that this child was coming and my water had broke while my husband was not home. And so um, as my water broke and I was deceiving myself, my phone alarm was off let me know that it's midnight. So I rang in the New Year's in the shower with my water breaking. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, in classic me fashion, my water break, TV worthy style. Like if I had been grocery shopping, I would have been highly embarrassed um, because it was very um, forceful and apparent <laughs> and a lot. <laughs> so um, I don't know why I thought that when your water breaks, um, it just, it's like a one-time job and then it's done. But I said, you know, just in case my water did break, when I come out of the shower, I'm going to put down a towel. And of course, being as pregnant as I was, the only way I could lotion my calves and my ankles <laughs> was by putting my leg up on the toilet. Yep. I did that. <laughs> TV-worthy water breaking again. And again, and again, and I was like, okay, so my water did break. <laughs> um, so I wasn't scared because I wasn't feeling any kind of pain, anything like that. But I was scared, not so much because my husband wasn't there, but because my midwife had told me beforehand, because I was carrying so high, that there was a chance that if my water broke prior to me going into labor, that the umbilical cord could drop first and then baby would drop. And mm -hmm. then there was a chance of the umbilical cord getting wrapped around baby's neck. So to end up on all fours or um, to lie on my side. So um, my phone was actually in the bedroom and I crawled with my <laughs> water leaking <laughs> to the bedroom on yep. all fours because I didn't want to take any chances and got to the phone called my husband of course at now at this point like 1205 phone lines are like overwhelmed I'm yep. i can't get him so now i'm panicking because i'm like what if something happens he's not here as in he's not answering and i'm like i don't know what to do because i have this fear in the back of my head that baby can drop after the umbilical cord and so um, finally I get him he calls because he's on his way I'm lying there on a towel on our floor <laughs> on my side water gushing out of my body and I'm like I swear it should stop and I remember my midwife had also said if your water should break prior to labor um, commencing so there's like a 1% chance or a 10% chance rather of that happening. 
But within that happening, there's a 1% chance in the 10% that it will happen like TV worthy style. Mm-hmm. And that was you. Different because you can put on a pad and the pad will be soaked in like 10 minutes or you'll put on a pad and it'll take like an hour to fill. So I put on the pad and I did the pad <laughs> test while I was waiting for my husband. Everything was soaked in like five <laughs> <laughs> They're like, of course, I'm in the one percent. Of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I'm sitting there. He finally makes his way home. It's like one o'clock in the morning, and I said to him, "We should call the midwife, or rather, I think it was him. Regardless, he decided we we're calling the midwife." <laughs> I wasn't feeling any pain, but I was concerned just because, again, the umbilical cord. Yeah, yeah. Give her a call, and she's like, "You have no contractions." And I'm like, "Correct." She's like, then go to bed <laughs> because y'all need to rest before like pain ensues. So um, just rest and I'll give you a call around 8.30 in the morning when the clinic opens. You can make a plan to see if you'll come into the clinic or not or if I'm coming to you. And I said, cool. She's like, you're a first time mom. She was like, it's going to be a while. I said, cool. Went to sleep and by two, uh, by 1.30, by 2 a.m., I was awake again. Contraction started. Um, contractions continue to increase by 3.30 I turned to my husband and I'm like hey so um, I think you should start using your contraction tracker and he used his app and his app within the first five minutes told us 511 and I said the app's a liar Get <laughs> I don't trust your app we should have tried this from before <laughs> it's a faulty app and he's got another app and we did it again and again it said 511 and i said that app's a liar <laughs> get another app <laughs> so by four o'clock we tried three different apps they're all telling us 511 i said this is not the plan um you go to bed i'm a labor by myself for an hour or so if i need you i'll wake you up you're right there so from four to five i labored on my own and i used my contraction tracker to <laughs> track my obviously and the app told me within 15 minutes 511 and i <laughs> you're also alive <laughs> i'm not listening to you <laughs> um so i just kept laboring and by five o'clock i started throwing up so i woke up my husband and i was like your apps weren't lying unless my app is lying we're gonna just have to work this out so throw through i was vomiting from pretty much like five till about Seven by seven thirty, Reynolds like we are not waiting for the midwife to call us. I'm calling her. She still ended up calling us around back around eight thirty. Um, he's talking to her. She hears me like wailing in the background because a big thing from um my birthing process was I really was in tune with my voice mm-hmm. and just finding power through it, especially as a speaker and a performer. I knew my voice would be key for me. Yeah. Um, so she could hear me in the background and she's like, when I heard you, I knew you were really progressing. But when I spoke to you in between contractions, you were fine. So I didn't really think that you were as far along as you may have been. Um, this was in hindsight. <laughs> um, so she said, okay, I'll be by to see because y'all can't come to the clinic. Uh, so she came by her home around 9.30. Her plan was to stay for about 30 minutes, um, check in on me, go have breakfast, meet us at the hospital or make a 
plan and then go from there. She didn't leave our home until we all left together at 12 o'clock. So from 9.30 um, to 10 o'clock, she had measured me and she's like, you're about three centimeters. I've been walking around like a centimeter, a centimeter and a half for like a week. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all of this. <laughs> okay. So when she's getting ready to leave around 10 o'clock, I said to her, how will I know when I've reached about five centimeters? And she said, You'll call, you'll know, so call around that time. And she's like, you'll know, there'll be a level of intensity. And I said, okay, are you sure? And she says, yeah. And I said, well, I think the intensity's happening now, but I'm sure it can't happen that quickly. So no worries. But do you want me to test you before I leave? And I said, no, no. And she says, I think it's a good idea that I do. She tested me to see how dilated I was. And I went from three centimeters to five centimeters within 30 minutes, which is why she didn't leave. <laughs> Monet was like, I'm coming, y'all. <laughs> I was like, I'm coming, I'm on my way, <laughs> That was around 10 o'clock. So from 10 o'clock to 11.30, we were laboring at home. That was our plan, to labor at home for as long as possible and then go to the hospital, have a hospital birth. Between 11 and 11.30, I probably should have made the decision to go to the hospital because the hospital is located about 20, 25 minutes away from our home. But I had the belief, again, it comes back to belief, labor really is in your mind, that (laughs) I couldn't make it to the hospital in that time and sit in the front seat and not have my birthing ball. I was convinced I would die en route to the hospital of sheer pain. (laughs) So we were going to give birth at home. And with my midwife, again, one of the reasons I wanted a midwife was the fact that um, she could deliver our baby at home should that be a last minute decision we made. But Reynolds said, you told me I had no other job in labor, but to support you and to encourage you to stay uh, like as close as possible to our birth plan. The birth plan was not to give, labor, not to, give um, to birth baby at home, but to birth baby at the hospital. So at 11.30, everyone's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, um, whatever he decides. And then I was like, you are an autonomous woman. I have to have your decision. And so I was like, okay, fine, we'll go to the hospital. All I remember is once I said that, Reynolds flew down the stairs and homie was in his coat, <laughs> like at the car, everything, bringing the car around. And I turned to my midwife and she's like, put on your pants. And I'm like, I don't like pants. <laughs> I, what I didn't realize is once she tested me at that point, she measured me, um, I was actually fully dilated on one side of my cervix and eight centimeters on the other. Mind you, this is two hours after being three centimeters dilated. So I put on my pants, I put on my socks, put on my coat. And the last thing I said to her before um, Reynolds came in the house was what if I need to push when we're on the road she says well you won't need to push and I said but that's not what I asked you <laughs> well, you need to push and I said yes actually I do so what if I need to push while we're on the road and she said well, you're going to she said well I'm not about to deliver a baby in a car on the highway on the coldest day of the year so you're not going to push in the car <laughs> And I said, well, the reality is, it really feels like I want. So what do I have to do? 
And she says, you're going to do one of two things because it engages your muscles in a different capacity. You're either going to pretend like you're blowing on a feather or you're going to say house. So I tried blowing on a feather once we got into the car and it wasn't working for me. I felt like I needed to push. So I tried saying house. For the first five minutes of the ride, it was just contraction on top of contraction, on top of contraction, and me saying house, 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 house. Reynolds' commentary was, house? What about the house? We're not going back to the house. Did I the house? Did I forget a bag at the house? Did I forget a baby bag at the house? We're not going back to the house. We are headed to the hospital. We're not giving birth at the house. We are not going back to the house. <laughs> I just finally touch a breath. I was like, oh, house. We're not going back to the house, house. <laughs> we, the doors locked at the house, house. I'm supposed to say house in between, in between contractions when I feel like I am needing to push. So I continued saying house, probably the funniest scene on the highway, screaming house. <laughs> um, again, I'm a performer, I am a speaker, so my voice is incredibly loud. I'm surprised the neighbors did not hear. <laughs> So we get to the hospital, midwife parks us downstairs, and we get to the hospital door. Reynolds like, let's get her a wheelchair, let's get her something to get her upstairs. And she's like, nope, she's walking. <laughs> what? She's like, yes. Her cervix is tilted, so she's fully dilated on one side. She needs to get the other side dilated. The best way is walking. So I'm walking through the lunchroom area of the hospital, through the reception area of the hospital, past the elevators of the hospital, because she said, we're walking up these stairs. I'm walking up the stairs. And to be honest, that was probably the best part of the labor. <laughs> um, was walking up the stairs. I walked up the stairs and in my mind, again, giving birth is in your mind. Yeah. I said, I just have to make it to the labor and delivery doors. I don't have to make it anywhere else. I don't even have to make it to the room. I don't have to make it to the bed. I need to make it to the door. Let me tell you the limitations of your mind because I literally made it to the doors and I couldn't go anywhere. Yep. So yep. I made it to the doors. My midwife is like screaming at me. Keep going. <laughs> You're like, no. no I said door. Two doors down. I'm like, mm -hmm. nope. I'm, I'm <laughs> and she's like, it's two doors down. You can make it. You made it this far. I'm like, mm -mm. she's like, you're going to walk there. So I walked there. I peeled off all of my clothes, dashed it everywhere. I'm in this dress that I was wearing at home anyways. And I'm up on the bed on all fours, like, let's do this. She's like, mm -mm. it's just me. Because you took your sweet, sweet time at home deciding if you want to give birth at home or at the hospital. The other midwife isn't on site. I need to find help. I can't do this a moment. That's not the, that is not the birth plan. <laughs> <laughs> and so she ended up having to get the assistance of the nurses um, and on, in the ward to be present as she got paperwork done to assist me, whatever else. My husband's still downstairs getting me admitted and calling the mom. We call our moms the moms. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
hey, um, we're at the hospital. And because we hadn't let anyone know that we had gone into labor. We were just like, we're going to labor at home and then let people know once we're at the hospital. Yeah. So he, he's doing his due diligence. Um, the midwife is doing her due diligence. I'm in the bathroom, like, trying to put on this hospital gown. Nope. When I tell you, I was in the washroom, putting on the hospital gown, literally, in my mind, contemplating, do I touch this dirty hospital floor? <laughs> or do I find the strength within to make it back to the bed? <laughs> he walks in. Doesn't he find me on the hospital floor? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, and when I tell you, like, it's in your mind. Yes. Mind enough to be like, do I touch this dirty, disgusting hospital floor? Or do I make it back to the bed? And yes. Made, my body ends at that moment, honestly, made a decision. No, you're, you're touching the floor. Right. So he's like, no, we're going back to the bed. And I went back to the bed and they measured me and they flipped my cervix. At that point, I was nine and a half, like nine, nine and a half centimeters. They flipped my cervix over baby's head, fully dilated, ready to go. We got to the hospital at 1230. Monet was born at 125. She was, and mind you, the 1230 is like from parking lot to room to hospital floor, changing clothes on all fours to giving birth and her head, like, like her being out of my body. Yeah. So in less than an hour of us arriving on hospital ground, she was born. Um, so I pushed for like five, 10 minutes. They were monitoring um, her heart rate. They noticed that it was dropping. So they wanted to expedite the process. Again, another reason why I love midwives. They always opt for the most natural process possible mm -hmm. before they opt for C-section. My midwife had said to me, had I had an obstetrician, it would be a guarantee that I would have had a C-section. Because baby's heart rate started to drop. They were afraid that she was in distress. And an obstetrician would have just went for the easy route out. Easy for them, not mm -hmm. about me. Mm -hmm. Luckily, my midwife was there to advocate for me. And while an obstetrician was on site to help in the delivery of my child, because she came so quickly, the second midwife couldn't arrive on time. <laughs> um, the obstetrician listened to the advice of my midwife, which I'm so grateful for. And they opted for an episiotomy. Now, I knew I was going to have the episiotomy simply because the week before I gave birth and we went for our last midwife appointment before my due date, the midwife was explaining different things that can happen in birth and how once a year she does an episiotomy. That's usually what it works out to be. And when I tell you whether it was Jesus himself, intuition, or baby, something told me you're going to be that one for the year. All so the, like, rarities just lined up. <laughs> <laughs> always. Always. Classic Aliso. Um, I get the one episiotomy that she does. At least she got it out of the year, out of right. the way at the beginning of the year. You sacrifice um, for others. Right? Right. So I get the episiotomy. Mind you, people always ask me when I tell the story, did you get in the epidural? I laugh because I'm like, in the time from garage <laughs> to birth, do you think I got an epidural? <laughs> so I got an episiotomy. Um, with no pain medication, no pain relief. 
Um, after pushing for 10 minutes, I pushed baby out with the assistance of a vacuum. The vacuum is literally single-handedly the worst part of labor and delivery. The episiotomy was like nothing by comparison. <laughs> um, with vacuum assistance, Monet was born at 1.25 p.m. And while my birth plan was to have skin to skin, um, because she was in slight distress with her heart rate um, dropping, there was some release of meconium. They had to clean her up. But again, it's to point two of getting ready for labor. I was flexible. I didn't get skin to skin. That was okay because I was flexible with everything else. <laughs> and she was born and they decided that she was um, too small for her gestational age. So I was technically 40 in a day and Monet was six pounds, three ounces. And we stayed in the hospital for two days. And that was it. She passed all of her tests better than an average baby. <laughs> So that's a very long-winded birth story. Yeah. Well, your story brings up so many things. I'm like, was ferociously writing down, like, talk about this, talk about this, talk about this. Okay. So <laughs> my first thing I want to hit on is like your initial feelings about being pregnant. I don't think we talk about that enough. Like there are many a people who are, you know, planning to, to expand their families. Some people, it just happens. Um, there's a there's just many ways it all comes about, but I think something we don't talk about enough is like when you actually find out you're pregnant and people's emotions around that. I think whether you're planning or it's a surprise, there's for like a majority of people there is a split second of like, oh crap, yeah, this is real yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, your entire life changes. Yes. What do yes. you know on like the moment of conception? or whether you find out five months in. I have a friend and she's like, after she conceived, she starts to throw up. <laughs> like, it was like instantaneous, like knowing. And my sister-in-law found out five months into her pregnancy. So regardless, you do have that split second of, my entire life is different. Yeah. And when you had not planned to be pregnant in that moment, determines how long that split second lasts. Yeah, and that is okay. Exactly. It's okay. I mean, I think as long as you, like, you should be allowed to have that time to like reevaluate how this is going to change your life. And that may take you a day. It may take you a couple of weeks. I think it's great if you can find a place of happiness in it. That's ultimately what we hope. But like, it's okay to have those feelings. Yeah. Because think about it. If this is not what you plan and you're not in a situation that you ever thought you would be in, when you were pregnant, you're not going to be happy. Mm -hmm. Simply because every child's a blessing, blah, blah, blah. But if you think about it from the perspective of if you had lost your job when you were not anticipating to apply, mm -hmm. be happy? No. If you had just bought a house and you lost your job, would you be happy? No. <laughs> There's yeah. Other circumstances in our life, people are like, it's okay if you're not happy. Yes. But people expect us to be automatically, instantaneously happy that you are pregnant, that you conceived. And if it's not on the timeline and schedule that you wanted, which it wasn't for us, you're going to have a moment of not being okay with it. And that's okay. It's okay to not be okay. Exactly. Exactly. So me, I really struggled in the beginning part because it was not on our timeline. Two months into our marriage, and yeah. we were traditional route. Like, I was a virgin at marriage, and we didn't live together. 
I was looking forward to marriage as being like a free time in a sense with yeah. him and enjoying being with him. Our plan was to wait at least a year. I wanted to, to know what sex was like without being. Without <laughs> <laughs> having to schedule it in, okay? <laughs> like, there was a lot of things that I was looking forward to for my first year of marriage that I didn't get because I was pregnant. And that's okay. I had to warn it. And it's okay that that's what I did. I also, in our pregnancy, had to mourn the, like, the not mourn, but I had this fear that I was going to have a girl. I had to come to terms that I may not have a boy. And that's okay. And when I really unpacked it, I realized I was fearful of having a girl because I was fearful the girl was gonna, going to be exactly like me. And that she would have to face all the hurts and pains and challenges that I faced as a black girl with hair like mine and skin like mine mm-hmm. and loud and outspoken and mm-hmm. speaking a, a lot and all the rest of it. And the funny thing is she's exactly like me. But when I finally accepted I may have a girl and have a girl just like me, once I realized that and accepted it, it was because I realized she will have something I didn't have, which is a mother like me. My mother is an amazing mother, but she didn't know how to handle a girl like me mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, okay. that's okay because we're different people right so my daughter now has someone that i didn't have right and i had to come to terms with that so there was a lot of times in my pregnancy i just had to be okay with not being okay we were eight months pregnant my husband lost his job there was a reorganization in, in his in his company and he came home one day and I was like, What are you doing here? Eight months pregnant, a month mm-hmm. away from a month away from our due date. There are things that will happen in your pregnancy you're not okay with that you'll have to be okay with. Right. 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 So true. Um, the other piece that I want to hit on is like the your water breaking. I think be, you know, society has really constructed our minds of what pregnancy and birth and postpartum is supposed to look like. And one of those misconceptions is like everybody's water is this gush. And then you go to the hospital and you have the baby. For a lot of people, your water breaks like a trickle, just slowly coming out until baby comes out. For some people, it is that big gush, but then you might have more gushes. And I, and, and so it just, it hits on like our understanding of what birth is supposed to be. And then also goes back to like your fear of birth because we only highlight like certain aspects, but don't actually get down to the nitty gritty of like what normal birth is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then normal birth is right. How different that looks because exactly like, a lot of friends and family were pregnant in and around the time that I was. And while we all had, um, what four of us had vaginal birth it was all completely different vaginal mm-hmm. and there's another person who had a c-section and that's okay too mm-hmm. it's all different perspectives that we don't really talk about or highlight um but i think what's funny in it is that i had prepared myself to not have a tv worthy water breaking and then mm-hmm. i <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then there's other people who don't prepare themselves in that way. And then it's almost like they're disappointed that they do mm-hmm. that as being part of their story. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so the other thing I want to talk about in thinking about the variations of normal of, of birth is like you needing an episiotomy and then vacuum assistance. And, um, you know, we tell a lot of people, like if there's going to be tearing happening when you're giving birth, the goal is that it's natural tearing because that helps with like one, allowing baby to come down the way they need to. And then also your healing. But sometimes within that variation, an episiotomy might be necessary. And so I think that hits on again. Oh my gosh, she's so cute. I can't even. <laughs> Monet is up in the camera, y'all, and she's just too adorable. Um, but having the care of a midwife, like you said, who is going to try all the other options first before getting to a point of having to intervene is so important. You know, really just allowing your body to do that. And there's, you know, OBGYNs out there who work under that same scope as well. There's fewer, but there are, are those who do. But I think, you know, again, sometimes an episiotomy is, some, is necessary. Sometimes vacuum assistance, and for those who may not be familiar with that, it, it is literally like a vacuum it's like in a this suction. sense. Yeah, because suction, yeah, it, it's a instrument that goes on the baby's head and they use kind of like an air force and help while the birthing person is pushing baby to come out. And sometimes that is necessary depending on baby's um, position and, and all of that. But I think it's just really important having a care provider who can walk you through that and let you know like why that option is necessary and why that may be helpful. So you do avoid maybe, um, a C-section, which is, a, you know, again, another fine way to have a baby, but it is also major surgery. Mm-hmm. And with that comes its own ripple of things. Um, but I do have a question specifically thinking about your midwife. You are in Canada, so y'all already do things way better. But <laughs> for our listeners, how does that work? Because I know you said you had a midwife and she could birth at your home, but she also could do the hospital. So could you walk us through that a little bit? So what was really great was having a midwife. Um, there's a few things, a few major reasons why I wanted a midwife. The most major reason was I wanted consistency in care. I wanted to ensure that the face that I saw at 11 weeks was the face I was more than likely going to see in the delivery room with me. Um, so that was the biggest reason why I wanted a midwife. So consistency in care. Um, there was also a team, so I worked with two midwives, so that was a really great thing, too. Um, the third thing is that the midwife has the ability to give birth at home. She has all her tools and equipment that she's walked with. It was in her car. So she had, at one point, when I was seriously debating if I wanted to give birth at home, she's like, you need to let me know so I can go downstairs and get my stuff out of the car. So she could do the episiotomy if she needed to have the equipment to sew up whatever tears may have occurred, um, to um, have a monitor to be able to to check baby's heart rate, check my heart rate, all the rest of it, have what she needed right. in our home. Um, but with the midwife, she has privileges in a hospital, just like an obstetrician does at a particular hospital. And so with that, she has the privilege to be able to like book a room. So like luckily for us, our room was ready. Once I got to the hospital, my room was waiting because my midwife had done the, the legwork at our home mm-hmm. by saying, prep this room, I'm coming in. But with that, um, the midwife is supposed to technically standardly 
work in teamwork with another midwife, whether it's the right. midwife team or not. Um, but at a certain point, she's no longer able to assist in the delivery of your child by being the lead. Had um, the other midwife been present, um, I wouldn't have had an obstetrician or nurses in the room. Got it. But had I needed a C-section, had I needed an epidural, had I needed anything that required like greater degrees of medical attention, she tells us um, there are certain medications she was not able to prescribe for me. I had a consistent UTI that just wouldn't clear up. At the time, for a majority of my pregnancy, as well as for a majority of my life, I had thought that I was allergic to penicillin. That's what we were told. Um, so I couldn't use penicillin. And then the other thing I, I, um, I was not able to use because I was pregnant. And so when we found out that I didn't have certain allergies anymore, um, I had to go to a doctor to have him diagnose it for me just because her limitations only reached so far. Right, right. I know. I think about just how being able to do that type of transfer of care would be wonderful. And, you know, like where I am in, in Ohio, um, you have your home birth midwives and you have your hospital midwives. And so you, they're separate. They do not work together. Yeah. And so it's really difficult. Like say you do have a home birth and you, and you may need to go to the hospital for a transfer, that process is made so much more complicated because there's not that communication already happening. That and is so, actually incredibly infuriating because in that moment, the last thing you need is that level of communication taking place, which explains why there's such a high death rate happening. But that's a different story. Okay. <laughs> but it, it would just make it all so simple. Mm-hmm. Like if you're are if you're if your midwife is already having that communication with that hospital, it makes getting your records over there easier. It makes getting a room easier. It makes being being able to explain what went on at the home and why we're transferring. It just makes everything much more efficient exactly. and easier. And that was a great thing with it too, where she was advocating for me once the obstetrician took the lead because she had known what my birth plan was, she knew what my ultimate desire was, and she knew who I was. Exactly, exactly. I understood certain things. And while the obstetrician by law had to explain to me what an anesthesiotomy was, she knew that I knew what it was because she did her due diligence. Exactly. So it was really great because, and again, another reason why I wanted a midwife, I wanted an advocate in the room for me. Mm -hmm. Worst case scenario, Monet had to be taken away from me after birth. My husband would have gone with her. Who would have been in the room advocating for me should something have been wrong with me? Mm-hmm. Or vice versa. Maybe we would have sent the midwife. Who knows what right. we would have right. the point is, I wanted to ensure that not only my child was protected, but that I was protected. Right. Back to my initial belief, I thought I was going to die. Like I right. me, But that really was a true fear of mine. Yeah. So I wanted to ensure that I had somebody in the room on my side. Exactly. Someone who was paid to be on my side. Right. About a midwife, in, in at least in Ontario, and I'm pretty confident this is true across the board in Canada, but I didn't do my research to confirm. We don't have to pay. In Ontario, our government covers a midwife the same way that our government covers for an obstetrician. So I didn't have to worry about um, 
paying out of pocket for a midwife or her care or for her advocating for me or giving birth at home or coming to my home for the first two weeks post Monet's birth and checking in on us almost every other day calling her or their team at any point of time just to check in and be like hey she's doing this weird sound is she supposed to be doing that yeah, yeah. like that was another again another reason why i advocated for midwifery care was because i knew that six weeks post birth i was going to have this undivided attention from a team of midwives from a team of women who just get it yeah mom or they have done this so much that they're so passionate about it. They care enough about you to assist you in that six week postpartum. Yeah. With that pediatrician or that specialist or whatever it might be to come into your home and connect with your child and your family. Um, which was huge because especially knowing the time of year that we were going to be giving birth, who wants to be bundling up their baby on January 3rd to roll into right. a doctor's office that's like riddled with sickness? Right. <laughs> no, you're that. so right. Like, and my, and my midwife is coming to me and weighing my child and checking in on me and checking my care and all the rest of it. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, you, you're so right. Like, I think about we, I did a home birth with my son and, you know, the midwife came, like you said, the next day we did those checks. But again, because of the way our systems work, I still had to take him to his pediatrician. I remember like bawling my eyes out, like, why do we have to get him dressed? Like, I can't get the car seat. It just like, it was horrible, but you just bring up so many, so many good points. But this is a really good segue. You started talking a little bit. Can you briefly explain how postpartum was for you? Um, postpartum was in some aspects easier than I had anticipated mm -hmm. and harder than I had anticipated. Um, the hard part was I had prepped myself. My sister-in-law had given birth six months prior to me. So I had like a first-hand immediate, like recent connection. Like I said, I had friends who had given birth recently too. So I know that postpartum is going to be tough. Um, having dealt with anxiety just a year earlier, um, and having known what not taking care of myself looks like in terms of symptoms of like, um, sadness and depression and things mm -hmm. like that, I knew what to look out for, but I will, so that part was easy. Like I was able to say, you know what, I can do this. This isn't going to be as hard mind over matter. But what was hard is the level of exhaustion that hits you and the type of exhaustion is something you've never experienced before. No matter how many night shifts you work, all-nighters you pull, um, adrenaline will only carry you so far. Right. So there were some days where I would just be like an insomniac, just sitting up. I could not sleep. I would just sit up and I'd be crying <laughs> because I couldn't sleep and I'd be frustrated because my husband's sleeping soundly and he just doesn't get it. And I'm uncomfortable and my body feels weird and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. Very challenging because as much as you prepare for it, you never know it until you experience it. Um, what was challenging postpartum, even like in the first three months postpartum, um, was the lack of support we got from our community and support systems that we were anticipating support from. It didn't pour in the way that we had anticipated, the way that we had expected because we had requested, because things were said. So my expectations really had to shift in a major way. Yeah. Those things made it really hard. But 
it was beyond that it was actually pretty easy in comparison to what i had prepared myself for because while i didn't prepare myself for death i had prepared myself for potentially being sad for potentially not wanting to see babies for potentially not being able to do things or wanting to do things that could be all the rest of that and i actually was so super excited to be a mom so super excited to be with babies so super excited to get back to the things that I loved and getting back to me wearing clothes. Like I'm again, one of the 1%, my belly was completely flat before I left the hospital. Like before I left the labor room. Listen, so, <laughs> you play the lottery. <laughs> like it was wild. Because I remember saying to my sister, I said to her, oh my goodness. Like we're going to find out what it looks like for, for like me. Like, what is it going to be? And I remember they said, a reading this article, it said, when you pack your hospital bag, pack it with um, clothes that you were wearing at about four or five months pregnant. Mm-hmm. I was still wearing regular clothes at four or five months pregnant. But I didn't want to be obnoxious and pride filled and pack regular clothes. I packed my maternity pants. And I actually ended up having to tuck them in and tuck in my sweater because they were too big. So I don't say that to quote, I say that because it's a part of my story. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I was just really excited to just get back to the fact that while certain elements of my clothes might not fit me the exact same way because my hips were wider, my chest was bigger, I could put on the clothes that I once wore and feel more like myself. So I was looking forward to that and that helped to make it a lot easier. Um, four weeks postpartum, we were at Queens Park, which is, I don't even know what the American equivalent is, but for us, it's our provincial government, so I guess we're like state government. Okay. Um, and we were at Queens Park um, for a Black History Month art show that my husband was a part of. I put a baby in her um, rack, her JJ Cole rack, or whatever it's called. Yeah. And we just kept it moving. And it was like, oh my goodness, what is she doing here? She was literally, to the day, one month old. And we were just like, we got stuff to do. We are right. family, and this is a high season for us. So let's get out there. Let's do what we need to do. And we did. Um, and I had her in there. And within like five weeks at postpartum, I had a school talk I had to do six weeks postpartum. We performed as a family. My husband was live painting. Baby was in carrier. I was performing poetry. I went right back to it. Um, even in the sleep deprivation, even in some of those emotional challenges, those hormonal challenges that you experienced that were tough, I got back to it because that's what made me happy. And I feel like that really helped me in my postpartum experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you said it. You said your voice is, is your power. Mm-hmm. And, and using that is definitely, I think, a great way to, that, that you're finding processing your birth, processing who you are now, processing your journey. And I think it's important that, that all of us find that in our postpartum period because a lot of things do shift and you do have to recreate your identity. And that may be tapping into old things or tapping into new things, but that's, that's really important to do overall. Um, but thank you so much for using, like, using your voice today to share your story. Um, is there anything else you want to share with listeners, resources, advice, anything else from your birthday? I know Monet's Marvelous Mondays. What is it? Your Mama Mondays. Mama Mondays. that I started on IGTV called Momo's Mama Mondays. I'm working on season two right 
now with a couple of guests. But, you know, as you know, um, moms and babies and all the rest of it, it can be hard to schedule. Um, but nonetheless, I've started this series as a part of really me um, realigning myself in my new identity um, through Momo's Mama's Monday. So um, Momo Mama Mondays are an opportunity for me to rant, I guess. Some people refer to it as ranting, but for me, it's <laughs> honest, authentic conversations um, about elements of motherhood that people don't want to talk about. Um, one of my pet peeves is when moms are like, oh, I don't remember what my life was before babies. This is so great. I'm like, you're a liar. I don't <laughs> baby opening the door. I remember a plate of food with both hands. I remember not having to share said plate of food. So just having fun conversations like that because they're fun, because they're authentic. Um, right. And not sugarcoating it. Having that conversation of I didn't want to have a girl. Um, having those honest conversations of what it looks like to raise a black child. You know what mm, I mean? Yes. Um, so Momo's Mama Mondays is a fun place for me to um, redefine motherhood for myself and hopefully for the community that I share it with. And having other moms, um, doulas, such whatever it might be, um, entrepreneurs coming on and having these honest conversations as well, talking about the stories that they have to tell. Because... One of the things with motherhood that I think, and, and identity that I feel um, some moms really struggle with is that motherhood can either quell your fire, like quench your fire, or it can start your fire. Yep. And too many moms let it quench their fire. And I really want to encourage mothers to allow motherhood to see that ignition and, and new source in their identity to do what they need to do and live their purpose on purpose. Um, yeah. And just understand too, that the, the power that you have as a mother, regardless of how your child came to be your child is astronomical. And the magic that has happened in the process of acquiring your child, again, regardless of how, your child came to be your child is something that it, it's brought you so far beyond your original self that your desire should never be to go back to the way you were, whether it be physically snapping back, whether it be living your life, your truth, your purpose, your actions, your everyday life, the way you once were living it. Because why do you want to go back to pre-magic? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Magic. You just found out that you are the most powerful person you could possibly be in your child's life, in another human being's life. You want to go back to free magic? Whether you got your child to adoption or foster care, vaginal, C-section, in vitro, I don't care how you got your baby. Your child is your child, and you're a mother, and that is your power. Yes, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. That's a wonderful way to like, just sum it all up. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your flexibility, for doing this, for sharing your story, using your voice. Um, we appreciate it. Thank you. It's all the things I had to use in labor and delivery anyways. <laughs> lessons I'm applying in my everyday life now. <laughs> That's the 
people, you know. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day and thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Birth Stories in Color. To hear this show and other episodes, head to birthstoriesincolor.com.